You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Welcome back to church, folks. Really glad you're here. We're continuing in a series called Stronger Together. We're following the phrase one another through the Bible. And it occurs so often that we're actually not going to talk about all of the occurrences of it because we are constantly being told that as Christians, we treat one another, fellow Christians, and also the world around us differently. Responsibilities that we have as people who follow Jesus and the way that we interact with one another because we want to live in love the way that Jesus loved us. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. That's where we're starting. Always good to be in the habit of opening a Bible. Ephesians 4, start at verse 25. We're going to spend most of our time on verse 32 today. Ephesians 4, 25. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members to one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we know that this is an old book, and we know that we live in an exhausting time where crises seem to abound. And yet, God, we know that you often change the world with a couple of people just trying to follow Jesus. And we ask that we would be those people And we ask that you would use us to make an impact in our world. We pray, God, for energy and for peace. We pray for hope and for passion. We pray for a willingness to be kind, to be tenderhearted, to be gracious with one another. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, friends, this is Eddie Johnson. He was born in 1959. This is Eddie Johnson. He was born in 1955. This is Eddie Johnson. He is six foot, eight inches tall. This is Eddie Johnson. He is six foot, two inches tall. This is Eddie Johnson. He played in the NBA. This is Eddie Johnson. He also played in the NBA. This Eddie Johnson, one evening in 2006, committed a series of felonies, including robbery, sexual assault, in Florida. This Eddie Johnson, as some of you know, 
is the announcer for the Phoenix Suns. And in 2006, he was in Hawaii on vacation when his phone began to explode. And the reason that that happened was because the Associated Press had correctly reported on the other Eddie Johnson. But because it was a black man named Eddie Johnson who played in the NBA, the more famous of the two suddenly got a lot of attention because many people began to assume that that was the Eddie Johnson we were talking about. And many news agencies began to widely report and show the picture of the wrong Eddie Johnson, who describes this as the worst day of his life. And he doesn't blame the other Eddie Johnson for it. He says, look, I'm not mad at the guy for being named Eddie Johnson. It's a great name. He just doesn't happen to be a great guy. But there were a lot of people who I had to say, shame on you. That's not me. Mistaken identity is a real problem. And of course, has a lot to do with the racist issues we're dealing with in our country at this exact moment. But it's a real problem regardless of the situation. It's just horrifying what happened to Eddie Johnson. So why does the God of the universe give us his identity? I can't imagine a riskier thing to do with your name than to give it to me or to give it to you. Because the truth is, it's a great name. It's just that you and I aren't great people. And Paul is consistently talking about this identity, how it marks us, and how it should mark the way that we deal with one another. In Ephesians 4, that's what he's doing. He gives a long list of things that we shouldn't be doing anymore, behaviors and habits that should change. And periodically throughout the list, we get some things that we should be doing. But verse 32 really sums up everything that's come before with three actions. Be kind. Be tenderhearted. Be gracious with one another. Be kind, be tenderhearted, and be gracious with one another. And then he continues on and says, that's really what it means to be an imitator of God, to live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And that phrase, to live in love, in Greek, really, it's sort of a, an expression. Now, really, it's, it's just walking, now that we would walk in love, now the way that Christ walks in love. That love is sort of the origin of our journey and the destination of our journey, and, and that it may be a long obedience in the same direction. But that Jesus creates the path for us, and that we become people who follow Jesus. That's sort of the idea. There's this grand image, right, of imitating God. And so I hear all of this stuff, and then there's this idea that we would be kind. And that just doesn't seem like enough in verse 32. Like, I'm hoping that that word is badly translated. Like, maybe it's a better, it's a more exciting idea than kindness, which is not a bad thing, but just sort of mediocre. And you hear about people talk about random acts of kindness, or little old ladies talking about being kind. And it would be nice, really, if, if there was something more, right? something better, something more ethically exciting than, than just kindness that we're being called to. But that's exactly what the word is. Krestos uh, in Greek. Just that's the idea, I and mean, you could translate it fancier with magnanimity or benevolence or philanthropy. That we would be the kind of people who, when we don't really have a reason or don't really need to, are nicer than everybody else. Kindness. That we'd be the kind of people who smile at folks in restaurants or open doors for people who need it or go a little bit out of our way to be generous with people. When Paul talks about thieves giving up stealing, he says it's not that they should just stop stealing, 
but actually they should make enough money so that they can give money away. Because that's what it looks like when you follow Jesus. That a thief would go from being a thief to paying his bills to paying other people's bills. That's what it would look like for those of us who are marked by the name of Jesus Christ. Kindness. Those little acts that add up over time, sort of snowball into the kind of life that we really want to lead. Now, I don't know why, but the idea of the word just bugs me, because it's just not enough. I want something bigger. I want something grander. I want crazy, remarkable discipleship. And the idea of small, simple, ordinary acts of kindness just doesn't seem like enough for me. So my brother and his wife, they live in a different state, and they go to a, well, they were going, really, to a, a cool church for a while. Hundreds of people and sort of famous among Christians, which I always think is weird, but famous among Christians, pastors who've written books that people know, influence on Twitter and social media and whatever. And they were going to that church for a few years, and they liked it, but they just couldn't really connect in community for whatever reason. They liked the sermons. They, I mean, they liked the cool factor, but just they, they worked really hard, and after a couple of years, they're like, it's just, we're not, it's not happening. So they were looking for another community, but they didn't want to just look. They wanted to really plug in somewhere. And so they looked for similar churches for a while, but they ended up stumbling into a really small church that was not at all cool. And my brother says, the thing you really need to understand is these people are not cool. They're awkward. They're, they're a little, they're embarrassing. They're weirdos, some of them. And you walk in the door and they're all over you. They're just so excited to see you. And they genuinely want to know your name. And they genuinely want to have you over to their house for dinner. And you're still thinking, I'm not sure I want to go. Because you guys are weirdos, and you're awkward, and this is just, this is just, it's not great. And he said, to be honest, I didn't really want to keep going to the church, but my wife said, you know what, let's, let's try it again. And the truth is, they serve the poor on Mondays. Every Monday, the church goes to the park, and they feed the homeless. Not some people from the church, the whole church goes. And they don't talk about it, and it's not all over social media, and it's not cool. They just do it. And... There are people in the other church we used to go to who loved what our church would do, but they never actually showed up to any of the things. They were so glad they went to a church where other people were doing stuff like that. But at this church, we felt like we, like we, we, would, we would be the weird ones for not coming. And the thing is, there's a lot of weirdness in our church, so we didn't want to be the weird ones. And it was a couple of weeks in, and my wife, this is my sister-in-law, looks at me and says... It's better to be kind than to be cool. And I'll tell you, that's a really simple sentence, but it's stuck with me. My sister-in-law is wise sometimes. It's better to be kind than to be cool, to be marked by that, than to be what I think a lot of people in our time would like to be. The word krestos uh, in Greek is kind of a pun. It sounds an awful lot like another word in Greek, Christos, which the early church thought was really funny, and you might in a second. Christos is a word that we pick up in English as Christ. That's, that's how we've turned, that's what we've done to that Greek word. And so in Greek, uh, to be Christ-like sounds an awful lot like being kind. Christos sounds a lot like Christos. And so there's a definite play on words that we would be marked by this kind of kindness in our day-to-day -day lives. But the word was actually used a lot in funerary inscriptions. So in the ancient Greek world, you would see it all over the place if you went to a funeral or if you were in a graveyard. It was written on people's tombstones or it was mentioned in eulogies. It was the kind of thing you wanted people to say about you when you died. It was the kind of thing you wanted other people to write about you when you died. You wanted that word to describe you 
and the life that you've led. What do you want written on your tombstone? That's an important question. What do you want people to say about you when you die? Now, for some of us, it, it sounds like a list of accomplishments or things that like maybe we've achieved. But you've been to funerals, and you've heard eulogies, and you know people who've died, and you've seen the slideshows, and you know the sorts of things that matter, and the sort of things that actually don't matter by the time people are really at the end of their life. And you know that the person that people talk about is the person you live every day being. And some of those people who die, and you hear, well, they were just, they were really kind all the time. Sometimes that sounds like a greater accomplishment than any of the other things you can do in business, or in your personal life, or in your financial life. What do you want written on your tombstone? What kind of life are you building right now? Do you like what it looks like? Does it line up with the idea that we would be living in love with one another? Are you marked by the name of Jesus in that way? Better to be cool. And better to be kind than to be cool. Tender-hearted, Paul says. Be tender-hearted. You want to live in love with one another? You want to be marked by the name of Jesus Christ? Be tender-hearted. And again, that's a great translation of that word. Good-hearted would also be one. But the word is frequently used of Jesus, actually, in the Gospels. Whenever there's somebody who's in deep need, or really in pain and wants to be healed, or someone who actually just kind of needs a lesson and is there to learn, often you'll hear Jesus loved them deeply or that his heart went out to them, or that he felt compassion for them. And this word really refers to sort of feeling deeply inside you. And where the first word is about tangible acts that you see that are small, now this is about an empathy that runs deep in you, right to the very core of you, that you would be tender-hearted. And it's hard to be tender-hearted in a world that's exhausting. It's an exhausting time to be alive. As some of us are just kind of done trying to zoom in with friends that we haven't seen in a while and aren't really thinking so much about the loneliness of others or the kinds of things that, that we used to care about as much because it's just, it's too much. There is a New York Times article I read the other day that was by David Brooks. And he said, we're facing five crises at the same time in America. Five, just amazing crisis, right? The economy that's falling apart, people who are losing jobs and aren't quite sure about the future of the national debt. COVID, which isn't going away, but we're all so tired of dealing with it that we've just given up a little bit. The reality of race relations in America that has always been problematic, but suddenly some people are paying more attention to it. And we're wondering, is anything going to be solved at all? The realignment of political parties in America, the fact that Republicans are not what Republicans used to be, and Democrats really aren't what Democrats used to be, and we're wondering sort of what the future holds with those things. And finally, the fact that we can't really talk to each other. We don't know how to talk to each other anymore. Our only real mechanisms for disagreeing with people are publicly shaming others, regulating their speech, or yelling louder than the other person. And he said, I'm sure there will be people who read this and who will comment and yell louder and go ahead if you think that's really going to make change happen. But I actually think it's exacerbating the other four problems. And even if those problems didn't exist, we would call that a problem all on its own. It's hard for us to be tender hearted 
in the time in which we live. And yet I think our culture is actually sort of instinctively tender-hearted toward people. We hear a lot more about people who are oppressed or living at the margins in our time, which is good. But we, we care about those people, but sometimes the tender-heartedness in our culture comes along with a soft-mindedness in our culture. There's a lot of soft-mindedness in our culture. When you hear people quickly relegating the problem to some other person somewhere else, or the solution to the problem is a symbolic victory somewhere. Tearing down a monument somewhere in the South may be a very good thing to do, but it doesn't stop black men from being killed by the police. And if ultimately that's the thing that we're worried about, and if that keeps happening, then that's a purely symbolic victory. But likewise, there are people on the other side of this who go, that's not going to solve the problem you all are thinking about. And so there's a tough-mindedness that almost immediately comes along with a hard-heartedness. A hard-heartedness that says, and who cares that people are offended by monuments? We should keep all of the monuments. And why would you ever erase things that have mattered to me and my family, especially if it's not going to solve any problems? So we find that in our time, our options are hard-hearted and tough-minded, or soft-minded and tender-hearted. And the Christian is called to be, well, neither of those. Called to be tough-minded people who are tender-hearted, who think very critically about the world in which we live, who don't accept easy or crap answers about problems or about ways to solve them, and yet who care very deeply for our neighbors, who care very deeply for people who do not look like us, and who have experienced massive oppression in our time. And so we, we are called to be people who are tough-minded and tender-hearted, which is something actually Dr. King talked about in one of his sermons many, 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 many years ago. He points out that Jesus tells us to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. And those animals don't have a lot in common with each other. In fact, one tends to eat the other, and the other tends to be afraid of the one. And yet Christians are called to do this dangerous thing of being people who think really critically and yet at the same time are tender-hearted. And we're going to have to do that in a time where there's a lot of soft-minded thinking and a lot of hard-heartedness, which is just going to make it more difficult. There's an idea in the church that you can't believe in the theory of evolution and be a Christian. That is soft-minded thinking. There's an idea in our culture that we can solve deeply held racial tensions by reposting what someone has put on social media. That's soft-minded thinking. There's an idea in our culture that it doesn't really matter that some people are in pain because the truth is it's going to be too difficult of a problem to solve. That's both soft-minded and hard-hearted thinking. There's an idea in our culture that we don't have to think about science, we can just be angry. There's an idea in our culture that we don't have to wear masks because I have rights. There's an idea in our culture that, well, it doesn't really matter that people are losing their jobs because I'm afraid of a disease. There's soft-mindedness and hard-heartedness everywhere, and we've lost the ability to talk to each other. And you and I have to live differently, to be people who put away falsehood and who speak the truth to one another, tough-minded people, and yet at the same time are tender-hearted in the way that Jesus is tender-hearted, that we would be marked by the same level of compassion that Jesus is marked with. Dr. King, in that same sermon, says, God is neither hard-hearted nor soft-minded. He is tough-minded enough to transcend the world. He is tender-hearted enough to live in it. He does not leave us alone in our agonies and struggles. He seeks us in dark places and suffers with us and for us 
in our tragic prodigality. That is absolutely who God is, the God that we've come to know in Jesus Christ. And so as a community of people, we've been trying to resist, trying to resist easy solutions to problems. But you may have noticed, actually, that as some of the anger has died down around George Floyd, so too have the protests. That for some people, anger was the only thing fueling the protest, and it, it's kind of dying down a little bit. And there are black activists out there who wonder if maybe it was just trendy for a while to be upset about this. And so for us as a community, one of the things that we really want to do, we want to engage this issue and see what we can actually do tangibly in our community as best we can to bring change. And so we've got a forum coming in a couple of weeks, and you're going to be invited to it. We're inviting some friends who are really good people, uh, part of the African-American Clergy Coalition and some people I know and love, who are going to talk about what it's like to be black in America and going to talk about what it's like to be a Christian and live in the name of the gospel in a really difficult time. And it's going to be really fun, and it's probably going to be hard to hear, and it's my hope that you will all come, and that you will invite your friends, and that we will listen. But that we won't just listen as an exercise in listening, but rather that we might actually take action in the world. That we might get involved in some of these things. You know, one of the reasons I think this has stuck out to me in such a big way is that I went to some of the protests, actually quite a few of them, and listened a lot, and was convicted frequently in the process, as I heard some of the anger and just some of the pain, and chatted with some of the people I was marching alongside of. And yet I also heard anger that didn't make sense, and I heard solutions to the problem that didn't make sense. And there was one day in particular that I was marching with thousands of people for several hours, and the very next day, uh, there was an event at the Phoenix Police Department, and a variety of different people, the mayor, people from the Phoenix Police Union, the chief of police, city council members, along with several African-American leaders who were pastors and friends, came together and talked about something they've been working on for a while, for years, actually, because these African-American pastors knew that policy doesn't change overnight, and they'd seen this issue for quite a long time in their community. And so they'd been talking about city budgets and making hard decisions and hard conversations and trying to work together with people that often they disagree with. And I heard people pray for police officers, and at the same time pray for people who've been killed by the police. And it was a remarkable event where tangible change was announced and real victory happened. Some of the most tangible change in the city of Phoenix, maybe for decades, on the subject. And like 50 people came. And so it was hard for me to hold the two things together, the march from the day before, which I think was still valuable and worth doing, but just that not a lot of people show up for the hard work of change, for the tough-minded and tender-hearted work of change in the world. And you and I are called to be those kinds of people who are willing to actually get our hands dirty and actually come alongside those who need help and actually work together with those we disagree in order that the kingdom of God might come. Kind, tender-hearted, gracious is the last one. Uh, my translation said that we forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us, and that's really good true. But actually, uh, what happens in the sentence, uh, before we've been talking about adjectives, right, that we would be kind people, that we would be compassionate or tender-hearted people. But all of a sudden it shifts to a verb, uh, that we would be gracious, or we would act in grace toward one another, the way that Christ has acted in grace toward us. And that definitely involves forgiving other people. But there's a lot more to grace, I think, than just forgiveness. Quite a bit more, actually. 
It involves trying to bring the gospel that we've experienced on the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ into practice in our day-to-day lives. There's something that kind of goes on in this passage of scripture that my dad likes to call as-so theology. You hear it a lot in the Bible, like that we forgive as Christ has forgiven us, that as Christ has lived, so we would live in love. But in particular, in the Gospel of John, you hear it a lot, right? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father has loved me, so I am sending you. As this has happened in the life of Jesus, so it should happen in the lives of those who follow Jesus. If we really want to follow Jesus, we would see real moves. And that's why there's this list of all of these things, right? And much of the time, I think we think of the gospel as something that happened to me a long time ago, or some tangible change, or some inner spiritual experience, and that's definitely true, and that's real and good and powerful. But most of the time, following Jesus means little changes in your life, giving up old habits and picking up new ones, becoming a different person over time, somebody who follows Jesus a little bit more today than I did yesterday. And I'll tell you, when I read that list that starts in verse 25, I was pretty convicted and demoralized, because the truth is, I've actually had a lot of anger going on in my life lately. COVID has shortened my fuse. I have noticed it. It hasn't been great. I've noticed, actually, that I have a lot more trouble forgiving people, and I'm a lot snappier with people. Well, I I wonder, actually, if you spent some time with this list, if you noticed some bitterness, maybe, in you that's been lingering around, or some just, I don't know, long-standing kind of grudges you've been holding against others, or the way that you've been talking about or to people, if maybe that could use some adjustment. Maybe we haven't been quite as tender-hearted or as kind as we're called to be. But regardless, I've definitely felt convicted. And yet I know that the good news of the gospel is that I come to a list like this, and I feel convicted, and yet that God has forgiven me. Right? That I've, I live this brand new life in Christ, and today is a brand new day where I get to become more like Jesus. And tomorrow, when I go, man, I was really bad at following Jesus yesterday, I get a new day to follow Jesus. And that happens again and again and again because of the grace of of Jesus Christ, but then that grace would then leak into my life, right? That, that I would be gracious with people who do not deserve grace, that I would love and forgive people who don't really deserve loving or forgiving right now, and may not deserve it for a very long time, that I actually would be the kind of person who, when you interact with me, it would feel like you're interacting with Jesus, that you would be the kind of person who, when we interact with you, it would feel like we're interacting with Jesus. Now that is a crazy goal that has been set before us, that we would be imitators of God, that we would be like Jesus, is crazy. My my son, Sam, who's two, is a great imitator. I learn a lot about what it means to mimic people from Sam, because he's always mimicking me, and he's always mimicking my wife. This is why you don't have kids. It's like having a tiny mirror walking around and showing you, oh, look, this is what you sound like when you're mad. Oh, look. This is what you do when you really are hungry. This is, this is what that looks like. He's learned that from someone, and it's probably all Jess. But the, at the end of the day, right, that, that we know that he's mimicking somebody, and one of the people he loves to imitate more than anybody else is Matthew. His older brother is someone he loves. He loves with the sweet passion that only a two-year-old can have. And no matter what Matthew does... Sam wants to do it, because Matthew is the perfect boy. He is strong, he is fast, he is smart, he can do everything Sam wants to be able to do. And so when Matthew plays with trucks, Sam plays with trucks. When Matthew has a favorite plate, it's Sam's favorite plate too, which causes a lot of conflict in our hands. When Matthew wants to run and jump, Sam runs and jumps, 
in his own way. When Matthew tells a joke and laughs, Sam tells the identical joke and laughs like we've never heard it before. When Matthew trips and falls down and yells, ow, Sam pretends to trip and fall down and yell, ow, and then laughs like it's a game. Sam wants to be Matthew. He imitates everything that he does. That's what you and I are called to do, that we're called to imitate Christ, to do everything we can to be like him. Because in Jesus, we've seen someone who's truly perfect, someone who is exactly who we want to be, and someone who loves us so much and we love him so much that we just want to look like him, we want to be with him, we want to spend time with him. That's why we read this book. That's why we read these lists of things, because we, we want to bring these sorts of things into our life. We want to become these kind of people with one another. We want to be marked by it in the same way. And the amazing thing about Jesus is we have Jesus' tombstone with us all the time. Some of us have it tattooed on our bodies. Some are wearing it on necklaces made of gold or bracelets. The cross of Jesus Christ is with us all the time. And we remember what was written on the tombstone of Jesus. What marked his death and what marked his life. Grace and love and forgiveness and kindness and compassion and tenderheartedness and tough-mindedness. And the list goes on and on. And we remember when we look at the cross just who it is that we've seen in Jesus Christ, but we also remember that he's not dead either. That he's very much alive and seated at the right hand of God, and he continues to mark us with his Holy Spirit, and he continues to empower us to live this kind of life and call us to be kind, the kind people that he's always called us to be. So what we see in Jesus is someone who both sets us free to a new kind of life, who sets the standard for a new kind of life, and who continues to empower us to live that kind of life. And so we who are marked by the cross of Jesus Christ remember what we want our lives to look like. Rick Warren, who's the, the pastor of a really big church out in California, many years ago, wrote a book. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. The Purpose Driven Life, sorry. And it's the most successful book in the history of the United States publishing. It sold 50 million copies. Not the most successful Christian book, the most successful book. Period. And with that came money and lots more influence, and all sorts of other things. And he talks about not being quite sure what to do with that, but being sure he didn't want to use the influence for himself and didn't want to use the money for himself. And he and his wife talked a lot about what that would look like. And so they spent a lot of time thinking through how they might really serve the poor and the marginalized in the world. And they talked about things like poverty and disease and illiteracy and, well, the list goes on, really, but just giant things that are impossible to solve in our time and in our world. He said, what we could do is we could give all the money to somebody, but that just means that it's their problem to solve. Or we could try to do exactly what they're doing ourselves, which doesn't really seem like a great way to work with other people. But they spent a lot of time thinking and trying about it, and they decided what they're going to do is try to pair up local churches, and in particular local people, with local people. Try to connect local people with local problems all over the world to make the world a more local place. And he was interviewed at one point about the idea of taking somebody like you and connecting them to somebody in Ghana and saying, why don't you try to help them solve this problem? Try to unleash the potential of the church. And there was a, a news agency that interviewed him and said, so you're, you're going to change the world. And there was some real cynicism in the idea of it. And I get that, honestly, because plenty of people have done plenty of things, and I, I don't know that he's any better at it than anybody else. And he said, well, and there were lots of tangible answers to the, the questions that were being asked, but 
one of the things he said was, I, when I die, I would like someone to write on my tombstone, at least he tried. At least he tried. And I think that you could do that. And I think that I could do that. That we don't necessarily have to say, well, I know what's going to happen in the next 50 years, or I know what COVID's going to be five years from now, or I know exactly what I'm supposed to do on the subject of racial reconciliation, how I'm going to solve this just massive problem. But we can say, well, I can, I can be kind tomorrow, and I can be tenderhearted tomorrow, and I can follow Jesus tomorrow. I can be gracious tomorrow. I can forgive people who don't deserve to be forgiven. I can love when there's really no easy way to love. I could be vulnerable when it's really dangerous for me. I could try. And I could be marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. A little bit more tomorrow than I am today. And that's what it, learns, that's what it looks like to live in love with one another. The way that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant sacrifice, a holy offering to God. My friends, be imitators of God. Let's live in love with one another. And remember that someday we will die and that we want our lives to look like Jesus' life because we know that our resurrection will look like Jesus' resurrection. Would you pray with me?